The Sports Career Podcast, episode 359. How can culture make you a better sports lawyer? Sports Achiever, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Crib Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers, and if this is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you are a current listener, thank you so much for supporting the show over the many years of this show being live weekly for you with regards to your sports career development. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career in sports law. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's show is Alexandra Gomez Broomwood, who is an international sports lawyer and currently the senior legal counsel at FIFA Pro and also a judge at the FIFA Dispute Resolution Chamber. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Alexandra as a podcast special guest on the show and that's when today's episode Alexandra will share her sports career journey particularly in sports law and how culture can make you a better sports lawyer around the world so get your pen and paper take some notes and enjoy Alexandra it's such a joy to have you on the sports career podcast please you share to listeners your sports legal career journey when did it all start yeah sure it's a pleasure to be here thank you so much for the invitation um, and my journey, you know, I've been thinking of this for for long because I always said that my journey started a little bit by coincidence because it was not really planned. But thinking back, I think that there were many things like through my life that more or less brought me to where I am now. Um, if I think, I, I mean, the most concrete thing, of course, was when I came to the Netherlands. I'm from Uruguay. Uh, I studied law there and I uh, came to the Netherlands to study a master's in international commercial law. So also not in sports law. Uh, and I chose one of the electives that was sports law. So that was what more or less brought me uh, to this. But if I if I am honest with myself, I think I always had this. Um, if I think when I was a child uh, at school, we had to choose for sports. And if you were a girl, you could choose between handball and hockey. And if you were a boy, you could choose between rugby or football. So we could not choose football. And I always loved football. And I thought, like, why? Why? What? What's the reason for this? And I always complained about it. Um, and and no one really gave me a, a clear reason. So in the in the breaks from school, the boys would go to the pitch that we had there in the in the playground, and they would start playing football and they would not invite us because, you know, girls didn't play football. So I would always go and ask because I liked it. I played with my brother in the, you know, in the garden at, at home. <laughs> and uh, and they would always go like, no, no. So it was me and a couple of other girls, not many, but, you know, we were like a group of three maybe. And they would say no. So we were like, okay. And back then, 
long time ago, I was a fast runner. So together with another girl that was also running really fast, we would grab the ball and then run really, really fast and bring it to the girl's toilet. <laughs> so that was like the reprimand. So we we're like, okay, you, you want the ball back, then we play football. So it has always been a little bit of this thing. And uh, I've always been a, a football fan. I always liked it. I'm I'm from Uruguay again. So in Uruguay, we breathe football. Everyone talks about football everywhere. It's the topic. If you are watching the news, half of the news are about football, you know? <laughs> so it's really, really big. When I started studying law in Uruguay, at the same time, I did a teacher training course for English. Uh, so I, I gave English lectures at the same time to, to you know, make ends meet. And I also found it really, really nice to, to teach. And also kind of co coincidental, uh, I, I had two students that were football players, uh, one Brazilian and one Uruguayan. And like high level, uh, they were young still. They were 15, 16 when I had them. But one of them, for example, reached the national youth team of Uruguay. So they were really high profile. And that also got me closer to what the life of a football player was, even at that young age. In Uruguay, when you're 15, you celebrate the 15th birthday party, which is almost like a, um, a wedding, right? It's a huge party. Okay. These boys would not go to these parties because they had to train the next day. They were really disciplined. I started learning about like the life of a football player. Then when I came to the Netherlands to do my master's in international commercial law, my mom called me once. She worked in the Dutch embassy in Uruguay. And she said, listen, there's someone in the Netherlands from Uruguay that would like to um, have English lessons. And they asked us in the embassy if we knew of someone and you are there, you are studying, maybe you have some time and then you make some extra money. Maybe it's a good thing. Oh, yeah, sure. Who is it? It's Nicolás Lodeiro. Nicolás Lodeiro is a national team uh, player from, from Uruguay. He's not in the national team anymore, but he was there for many years. And he was back then playing in Ajax. So I was like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> so uh, I started teaching English to Nico Lodeiro and his wife. We became really good friends. Uh, we really clicked. And until this moment, again, I had no idea of sports law, football law, any specific regulation. I just had, it was just Uruguayan and I thought I knew about football. <laughs> and he started asking me things about his career because I was, a, he knew I was a lawyer. So he asked me some things. And one day he was really, really down and during, you know, our lesson. And I said, Nico, what's happening? And he said, well, something really odd happened today at the club. What was it? Well, there was someone from the club that said like, oh, I have, it has been so nice to be uh, with you through these years. We're going to miss you. And I was like, why are you going to miss me? Because I still have two more years to go. And he thought for himself, but he didn't say it. So I was like, oh, that is odd. He said, like, yeah, when we signed the contract, it was for five years. And the three years had passed. So I said, show me the contract. 
So I started reading the contract and then I saw that actually the contract was for three years and then there was a unilateral option for the club to extend for two more years. But when, of course, he didn't speak English, that's why I was giving him uh, lessons. He's, he was like zero level, zero level Dutch as well. So he was more or less incommunicated. And when he signed the contract, he was with his agent at the time that probably did not do a really good job. Uh, or certainly did not do a very good job because he didn't explain to him what was in his contract. So he was convinced he had a contract for five years. Um, so I was explaining him that, yeah, that that was not the case. So it was a huge thing. And then really quickly, because I think it was like one or two months uh, after that, his contract came to an end. So it was really like, whoa. Um, he didn't have his agent anymore because uh, not only because of this, but before that he had already realized it was a not not a, a good um, solution. <laughs> so he started asking me for help, and I was like, Nico, I don't know about this. You need like a professional that you know is educated on this. He was like, No, but I trust you, and you know what is important is that I trust you. So uh, I remember it was a, a really strange period because. Um, many agents started calling because you know they hear that a player is free and they all I, I was so impressed um, negatively <laughs> impressed on the amount of lies that they would say you know like yeah yeah we have this club yeah it's done it's done it's a deal it's here you will earn this you are okay but can we have an interview with the club and we see no 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 I managed that yeah okay great that you manage it but like we haven't seen these people, you know. Um, so this happened a lot. And I remember I was about to travel with Nico to Italy for a club because an agent also had this amazing opportunity for Nico. And Nico told me, like, I want you to come with me. And again, I was like, please, no, you need, like, someone that knows about this. <laughs> but he wanted me to go. But in the end, we realized that actually this agent didn't really have something concrete. Um, and he ended up going to Brazil, to Botafogo. He did there a career, then he went to Boca, then to Seattle, where he did a marvelous career. And now he's uh, starting in Orlando. So he he did really well. I didn't help him further. I sometimes checked his contracts because he, he kept on sending them to me just in case, you know, as a trusting person. But all this was without me having any education. And then we had during this master's in the Netherlands, so at this same time, the opportunity to study sports law as an, one of the elective uh, subjects. I had had this opportunity in Uruguay. One of the electives in Uruguay was also sports law. And I remember I was very tempted because I thought, oh, this is interesting. But I also thought, yeah, but it's interesting, but it's like worthless. Like it, it will not add anything to my career. I'm a lawyer. What, you know, this is just fun. And when I was in the Netherlands, I thought, oh, this is the second time. Come on, let's do it. You know, just, you know, I'm not going to lose anything. And I did. And the, and the subject was structured in an interesting way in the sense that the professor would bring a lot of guest lecturers. So we got people like from the industry. And, and one of the guest lecturers was the, who was then the legal director of FIFPRO. Uh, which I didn't know what what it was. I mean, I was completely, I'm a fifth pro, okay, what is that? No clue. And I remember I, I arrived at the class late 
it was raining. I was drenched. They had changed the classroom. I was not in a really good mood. I didn't remember who was going to be the guest lecturer on that day. And I entered kind of like, you know, all drenched. And I see this person giving the lecture. So I sit down. I start taking my things out. He had already started. And suddenly, uh, Suarez. What? Suarez? Luis Suarez? Is he talking about Luis Suarez? So I was really um, listening very carefully. And back then, uh, it was the, the, the episode with Evra, if you remember. Uh, yeah. So it was not a good moment of Suarez in that sense. Um, but it was a, it, it brought a very interesting discussion in the class, also among the, the students. We came from different parts of the world to talk about the importance of what he had said and the impact and the reasons and the, you know, and, and I remember we had a discussion also on, um, because that what I said was that of course these things could not be accepted, but that we also had to understand where football players many times came from and that they were not educated, that they came from very difficult social contexts. So I started talking about like what I knew from the football players in Uruguay. Most of them really, really coming from very, very difficult contexts, leaving their families when they were 12, uh, going to Montevideo, to the capital city, because it's there where the clubs are, uh, and then going to school under the supervision of the club that, you know, so it's not to justify it, but it's to understand, you know. Um, so we we were having a, a big discussion on this, and and um, we afterwards had a big discussion as well as well on the role of agents. Uh, we have very big agent, this um, very interesting uh, person uh, in Uruguay, Paco Casal. Uh, so I knew a lot about him because there are books, and you know he's a little bit of the king of football in Uruguay. And when the and I I thought wow this is so interesting what we're talking about you know the rights of the players looking at players in a different way like not only if they win or they don't win but like as a person and 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 how they have to go through all this and because of the experiences I had had with my students and with Nico you know everything was kind of connecting when the when the lecture ended um the Wilhelm uh, Mechen that was the the director of FIFPRO at that moment of of the legal department. He called me and he said, like, can I have a word with you? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, listen, I thought it was really interesting all what you said in the in the class. I think you have a lot of really good ideas and, and experience in the field. And I thought, like, mm, do I? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, we are actually looking for a legal counsel. Um, I'm not offering you the position because it's it, there's an external procedure uh, with an external company, etc. But I do think that if you apply, you may have you know good chances. And I was like, whoa! And it was so strange to me because all through the 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 planning, my my plan was to come one year to the Netherlands to these uh, masters and then go back home. And I we did it with my husband, so he also came to study to the Netherlands. Uh, and we still had our house in Uruguay and our car and our friends and our family and everything. So we we hadn't uh, like sold everything or anything. It was we only left for for one year. So it was a little bit of shaking moment. And I rem but I didn't even 
although I really liked that he thought of that, I didn't really see it as a possibility. So I didn't give it a deep thought and I went back home and I remember telling my husband and it was more him that was like, hey, but I really see you excited about this. Like, why don't you give it a try? And I was like, are you crazy? And he was like, you know, just apply and we see like if if they pick you and you, then you say like, I actually don't want it, then you don't go. But, you know, what do you lose? Yeah, okay, but we really need to see what actually FIFPRO is because, I mean, I had had this lecture, but so I remember that we were Googling in in the computer. Okay, FIFPRO, okay, oh, yeah, okay. And I don't think I still understood exactly, you know, what I was doing, <laughs> but um, a little bit triggered, as I say, but by my husband because he saw me so excited about it. Um, and actually, we had a great time in that year in, in the Netherlands, so we, we liked it here. Um, so I sent my CV kind of like, let's see. And then the selection process uh, took really, really long. I don't know why, uh, but it was really long. So I had one interview maybe one month after, but then my master's came to an end. And then I was going to go back. Uh, before that, we had a nice trip with my husband through Europe. And then I remember when I was in Budapest, I had another interview <laughs> uh, online with with the recruiter. Uh, but then I didn't hear anything else. And I thought, OK, I mean, I have to go back. I didn't tell them, though, because I thought if I now say it, I'm going to Uruguay, then I'm, then I'm out. So I had already, you know, we had both already returned to Uruguay. And I remember I was at my parents' house. Uh and I had I still had my uh, the same uh, Dutch chip uh, in my in my phone. I thought I will leave it for some days just in case. <laughs> and uh, and they called from from FIFPRO, and they invited me to to uh, to an interview. And then they said, but it was really FIFPRO now. It was uh, Theo van Seichelen, who was then the Secretary General of FIFPRO, and he said it's only you and one more. So you're like really in the in the end. And we won a final interview like in person. I was like, I <laughs> and I was all the time thinking, like, do I tell him that I'm in Uruguay? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't. So I was like, okay, 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 okay. And I hang up and I looked at my father. And he was like, What? Yeah, that they, they want me for an interview. He said, This is awesome. Why are you saying, Yeah, but you know, they want me there and they don't know I'm here. And I was like, oh, that was so silly of me. I'm going to call him back and say, let's do it via Zoom or something. But this was pre-COVID, right? I think that now it would have been a very different situation. But this was in 2013. And it was not that it was possible to do it, but it was not so called. It was, uh, you know, via Zoom, no, Zoom didn't exist. Or I don't know. Anyway, I think Skype was the thing. But I was like, yeah, but I'm not going to pay for a ticket to go to the ne from Uruguay to the Netherlands only for an interview and, you know, that they might say no. And then what? And also, I had just finished my master's, so I was broke. <laughs> so it was not really like a possibility. And my father looked at me and he said, like, do you want this job? I was like, yeah, I really think so. But you really, really want this job? Yes, I want this job. Okay, then you have to go. I was like, yep, Dad, but I can also do like a Skype or something. Like it's it is possible. And he said, no, not with 
someone like you because you have this energy that if you're with a person, you will transmit it. And he said, I know that if you go there, you will get the job. I was like, oh, don't say that. Like, you know, don't put me under that pressure. He said, yeah, I know you will. And uh, and he was really nice. And he told me, um, I will pay for that ticket because I think you will get the job. Uh, so he did, which was nice. <laughs> And and I did, and I so I never told him that I had left the country. I just went there. I went to the interview, and then immediately after the, the interview, they said like, "Yeah, it's you. We want you." So I remember coming back, calling my husband, like, "Okay, we're moving to the Netherlands." <laughs> so yeah, it was as I say, like it, it's a little bit of coincidence in a way, but on the other hand, like football has always been like around in 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 my life and. And and the 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 sense of justing and defend justice and defending um, those who are in need. Um, I I I didn't have that view that most of the people have that all the football players are superstars and and are super wealthy and that they don't need anything because I come from Uruguay and in Uruguay we have some superstars but most of the players you see them they are just normal people. Uh, uh, so I, I knew about the difficulties. Of course, when I entered uh, in, in FIFRO, I saw that it was much worse than I had ever imagined, right? The context of the players. Can we have a timeout? Let's have a timeout. I need to decode that first answer because there's components I know there are great learning lessons. So, so we'll have a timeout and then we'll carry on the journey with FIFRO. Going back to when you decided to study and teach people English even if it's non-related to working in law, non-related to working in football, reflecting how big was that of having the opportunity to work with football players? The reason I share this, if students are like how to make a bit more money and they can, they've learned a language, they can leverage that, not just to monetize, but I see you nodding your head, but leverage to opportunities as well. I just want to hear your thoughts on that side of things, that's okay. Because I think this is really crucial. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that it it gave me so much um, to to study because um, you know some people say in 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 Latin America you can become a an English teacher if you know a little bit of English because the level is normally uh, not so high. But I actually did the teacher training course, and and there you learn about. Uh, um, how to actually teach and how to get to people and and they they give you a lot of tools and I always say that I loved all that period of uh, giving lectures and connecting with another human being and and seeing how you can help them and you know how how you can also provide them with tools so that they can uh, uh, do better in whatever it is in this case it was in in, in a language uh, so important. I mean, I had different types of students, right? But for these football players, I remember telling them like, guys, you're doing great in your career. Like who knows if you will end up in a different country. This is a tool that you will need uh, in order to live, right? And it's always much easier to learn it when you're a bit younger than when you're a bit um, older. But I, I always say I have uh, three uh, careers or three studies. One is uh, I'm a lawyer, I'm a notary public, and I'm a teacher. And the three of them are different, but they all of them, they have helped me in my career so much. Now I do give lectures as well on, on sports law. And of course, it's not English, but the, the, 
the structure is the same. The way you teach, the way you communicate, the way you put your message forward is the same. Uh, the, the the way you evaluate, the way you assess how your students are doing. So it has been a, a great tool. When I give a lecture, when I give a presentation, even when you prepare, I don't know, a PowerPoint, how you how you design your PowerPoint, all these things, all these learnings give you a lot. And as a notary public, uh, in Uruguay, the role is a little bit different of a notary public than maybe in Europe. In, in Uruguay, it's, it's a little bit more uh, essential because you, you use notary publics for everything. So if you want to buy not only a house, which is also common in other countries, but if you want to buy a car, you need also a notary public. If you want to create a company, you need a notary public. If you want to certify anything, you need a notary public. Um, well, you need it for many things. And the specific training for a notary public, the first four years are the same as for a lawyer. And then the last two are very specific on an analysis of a contract. And then picking like knowing how to create a contract, but also looking at the flaws of a contract. And this has helped me a lot. I can look at a contract and dissect it. I can also I can always think of which clauses should be added in order to prevent um, a, a litigation afterwards, because it's a little bit of a different view. The lawyer is there to litigate and 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 to defend the rights of of the client, and the notary is there to prevent that there exists a litigation. So it's kind of like the other side of the of the coin. So the three together have really, really helped me uh, through through my career. So I think that that is also a nice learning because I didn't design it. I never, I didn't do this because I knew that in the future, blah, blah, blah. These three things were things that I liked. And then somehow, you know, they all brought me learnings that helped me in my current position. And just with the Nico example, because I think this is really important where he said, no, I want you to sort of represent me because I trust you. I know this is a big state a question I'm going to give you, but it's really important. How important is trust and integrity when working with any professional athlete, not just footballers, but working with athletes in general? It's fundamental, I would say. It's really, really fundamental. Athlete, athletes in general and football players in particular, they start their career at a very young age. And unfortunately, most of them by the time they become professional, they have already gone through experiences that are not really nice in the sense of people trying to abuse their position uh, to, to benefit from the, the, the success of the players in, in, a, in a bad way, um, people hiding information from, from them, etc., um, and I really saw it, uh, well, with Nico in particular, he was really, even when I, well, this is interesting as well, when I started giving them English lessons, and it was only to give them English lessons, I first gave lessons to his wife, it was then his partner, for like two weeks or something, so they were kind of checking if I was okay, if I was trustworthy, and when they saw that it was okay, then I also gave lectures to him, so this this is to show, and it's not that he is a per, you know he's really nice and really open, but they go through so much. Nico moved. Nico is one of these examples that I told you. Um, he when he was twelve years old, he moved from Paysandú to Montevideo. Paysandú is, I think, five six hundred kilometers away from Montevideo, alone. 
to uh, live in the Club Nacional, which is one of the bigger uh, clubs in, in Uruguay. Imagine you're 12, you're, you're, you're a baby, you're a kid. You're, I mean, I wouldn't even say you're adolescent, you know, in theory, but you're 12. I mean, really, you're just finishing primary school and you are 600 kilometers away from your family, family that is not really wealthy. So they are not able to come to visit you, you know, every weekend or whatever. So um, for for them, it's really, really dif different, they're difficult. And because of how the industry is created or has developed, they need agents, um, especially in some parts of the world. Uh, and they need them so desperately that agents know that as well. And many of them, and I don't want to say it's all of them, of course, but many of them really abuse their position. And this is so, so bad. Um, so, yeah, as I say, like this example of what happened to Nico in Ajax is a very small thing. There are much worse things, also things that happened to him in, in other parts of his career. But uh, th that is the reason why when they see someone that is there, and is honest and is really trying to help them. And you will, we will all make mistakes, right? So it's not that you need to be perfect, but if you're honest and you say everything uh, beforehand and you explain the reasons for things, people as tend to assume that football players are not smart and that's nonsense at all. It's nonsense to say that a football player is not smart. There might be some people that maybe it's a football player that is not so smart as in any other, you know, profession. But there are so many brilliant football players. And even if they are not brilliant, they are smart. Many of them that are not may, may be brilliant, they are smart enough to understand if you digest it for them, if you, if you explain the conditions of a contract, they understand it really well. And many people say like, yeah, they don't want to hear about it. Well, maybe you also have to make an effort as a professional to make it interesting enough and, and digest the language. Because, of course, if you come with these terms in Latin, yeah, of course, they will like, yeah, they, they are clueless, right? What are you talking about? But if you say, like, listen, this in practice means this, this. Do you want this or do you want that? Uh, do you want to be exposed in, th in this way or not? Um, do you want to have certainty on your contract? Like, do you want to move to this club only if it's for five years? Or it's okay if it's three years and then the club will choose. Remember that if the club chooses, you have no say. That means that you, you cannot say anything. You know, like all this. Yeah. Can I dig deep on this point? Because I can see your body language and it's amazing, everybody. Honestly, there will be a little video clip of it because I think it's important. So from a lawyer standpoint, one of the key skills is looking at a contract with its legal terms, which even I don't even understand when I look at contracts. But the goal of a lawyer is explaining those legal terms in simplicity to the client in, I call layman's term, in just simplest way of explaining what it means to the point. Because I think that's where there's the miscommunication uh, and misunderstanding when, like Nico assumed it was a five-year contract, but actually it was three. So I see you nodding your head, but just for lawyers who are listening in, over the years of working with players or any contract, how do you look at a contract and then find ways to explain it in simple terms? Or is that the natural teacher in you, Alexandra? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably um, a mixture, but I think you really have to, you, you need to understand who your client is 
because of course also football players are very very different you have football players that are in university and you have football players that have not finished primary school right so even those who haven't finished primary school there are some that are extremely smart and they will get it sometimes even better than you know others but you need to understand in which level they are and i think that what you first before even having the contract of course many times and most of the times it's the club sending the contract and then you will have to agree or not but you need to understand what the player wants what do you want what do you need and sometimes you have because of 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 how good you are and how famous you are you have a lot of options and possibilities and sometimes you don't but even if you don't it's so important to understand what the player wants before even and this is maybe more for agents but sometimes lawyers are involved in this assessment when a club, when a player decides to which club to go you need to to ask the player why do you want to go to this club is it only for the money that they are offering is it for the exposure that you will have there is it for the playing opportunities that you will have there is it because you you have just had had kids and you just want to be in a place that is a little bit calm you need to understand all these factors you need to understand if your player is going to move to this new uh, uh country with his or her family or not you need to know if they have children or not because every element of the contract will have an impact on this and as i say sometimes it's very difficult to negotiate terms of a contract especially if the player is not very talented or at least not uh um has not been discovered yet let's say uh so so yeah the club says like well if you don't want it i pick another one it is true so sometimes it's difficult but there are some things that sometimes are possible to negotiate that do not imply a big thing for the club and that can have a great impact on the player to negotiate a a course a language course for the player to negotiate any other kind of studies this help players so much if they go with their family to also negotiate a course for the uh, husband or wife or partner uh, um sometimes there are little things so it's not only about how much the the player is going to to receive uh, in his hand uh, how much money it's not only about um the money there are so so many uh, things you have to understand as a lawyer which languages your 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 player speaks and yes you can and you should encourage them to learn a new language of course but you need to understand that that doesn't go like this that there are some players that uh, have a lot of capacity and they learn super quickly but most of the times it's not the case and that through the period in which they are studying they struggle so much because imagine not being able to communicate it's horrible i remember that with with nico and now i hear him because yeah of course he has been in seattle for so long so now he really can communicate really well in english um and i'm so happy for him but when he was in the netherlands he didn't speak english and he didn't speak dutch so his coach uh, back then it was frank de boer he spoke spanish because he had played in in spain 
But then what he would do, and I think he was really nice because he tried, but of course you're a coach and you have a whole team. So he would speak in Dutch. He would give all the instructions, like the whole talk of a coach. And then he would turn to Nico and go like, blah, 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 three things in Spanish. So that he knew what he had to do more or less. But he was out. Imagine how that makes you feel. And that impacts your performance. Of course it does. And you see it, like, I think the, the, the <laughs> I'm talking too much about Nico, but he's such a good ex example to me in that sense. When he played in Ajax, as a team, they won a lot, but he didn't have a lot of chances. He was not happy. He was not, he didn't get there, you know? When he went to Brazil, to Botafogo, um, Portuguese is a different language uh, than Spanish, but it's very similar and you learn it really easy. You can communicate. And he immediately started playing much better. Then he went to Boca, Spanish. Well, amazing. He did it there. And then he went to Seattle and he said, okay, now I really need to learn it. And he did an amazing season. If you feel well, you will play much better. And all these things, when you're a lawyer and when you're an agent as well, but also as a lawyer, and this is important to know, it's not only about, oh, is there a jurisdiction clause? Is there, no, you need to understand that your player is first a human being then a worker, and then a player. Just on that so that point, would you say, because uh, I've had many lawyers on this podcast and they always say be a, focus on being a great lawyer, when working with a player, like you've said, is it all about focusing on the lifestyle they want to live than actually how much they get paid? Again, she's nodding her head. The reason I say that is there's one player said, Ed, I moved to another country because the lifestyle suited me more to where I am now as a player and a human being. And I just want to emphasize that point, and you have, but I just want to emphasize lifestyle is more important than the whole package than just the paycheck. Um, could you just clarify this one point? Yeah, sure. Most of the times it is. Of course, you need to, you need to have this conversation because it might be that for whatever reason, the player needs the money. You, you can't judge and say like, no, don't do that. I mean, you need to understand what the situation is. But if possible, we did a research um, last year. No, 2022, um, as a little bit of a continuation of the employment research that we had done before in 2016. But this one is a little bit different and it looks about the conditions in the different countries. And this research shows there are some countries, for example, that have uh, a lot of money in football, for example, Turkey. So when you are offered a contract there as a as a football player, you will be super tempted because it's a big tournament. The numbers are really big um, and you're like, wow, OK, this can be really a great opportunity. However, if you compare it to the Netherlands, the market here is smaller. The zeros will be less in the in the amounts that, that they um, offer you. But in the Netherlands, you will be paid. It's very, very difficult. We have had really few cases of non-payment in the Netherlands. And when it happens, it's resolved. However, in Turkey, Turkey has been in the very top of the worst payer uh, clubs um, in the world in, at DRC level, Dispute Resolution Chamber of FIFA. So... And it doesn't mean that if you go to Turkey, you will not be paid. It will depend. Of course, there are some clubs that uh, comply better with their obligations than other clubs, et cetera, et cetera. But it's so important to have this information as a player. 
because it, not everything is obvious. Why would you assume that if you're offered a certain contract, that contract will not be a, a complied with? That is not normal, right? If you're offered a, a job ad and you're told you're going to earn X, why would you start thinking, oh, but maybe they don't pay it now. They will pay it if they're offering it, right? But in football, the crazy thing is that almost half of the players worldwide are not receiving their payments on their due date. And when I say this, I'm not talking about receiving it like a couple of days later. I'm talking about at least one full month to six months or sometimes even more late payments. It's almost half of the players around the world, professional players. It's crazy. Wow. Okay. See, look, look, I knew this would be an amazing conversation. And <laughs> the one that I want to pivot a little bit because it's so important and your smile says it all, your enthusiasm says it all, and I think it's important for people who want to enter in the sports industry in general how important is it to be excited when applying for a role I know your father gave you a little nudge for that final interview but I think I want people to learn that sometimes if you put yourself out there do the teaching you can make your own or create your own opportunities but how important is it to be excited in applying for roles and see what happens when it unfolds instead of panicking or getting stressed if you don't get the role I see you nodding your head again but I just want to hear your thoughts of the importance of being excited when applying for roles that, you know, interests you. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I think it, it it's so important. I think um, we are energy, right? Uh, and, and that's, it's not something you believe in or not. Like we are, this is like factual, right? And the energy transmits and you can transmit your energy. And um, so when you are confident about it, when you're excited about something, when you're passionate about something that is felt by other people. And even if, of course, people will look at your CV and they will look at your studies, eh? we are human beings and we are emotions. And you will, when you see a person, even if that person has the best C CV you have ever seen and the best working experience, if you don't like the person, and that's so subjective. But if you don't like the person, you don't like the person, right? And you might end up hiring that person anyway. Probably not, but you might do. And it will not work out. Because it's not about, it's, it's not only about knowledge. It's about connecting. It's about exchanging, right? Um, so that's why I think that... Um, it's so important the the passion that you put on things the the, the energy that you try to deliver uh, the enthusiasm yeah it's to me it's everything I know that of course there are different personalities and for some people uh, that are a bit more introverted it's it's not so easy to go like what of course um, but still if you're introverted you can have that passion and that shows even if you're not like screaming and shouting and opening your eyes as I do. <laughs> But I do think that it, it transmits because that is part of the energy. Of course. So we're going back to FIFPRO. You've got your role. Now you've been there 10 plus years. Explain not just more the journey, but reflecting those 10 years, what you've learned from that experience looking back. And come on, you've got to give your dad some credit because you've been there for such a long period of time. So I'm just curious for the 10 years, of that period, what you learned the most looking back? Yeah, well, from from a personal perspective, um, the importance of daring, you know, the importance of 
jumping and seeing what happens and 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 of course taking I mean I'm not like so, so wild or anything of course I, I'm also a little bit uh, careful but it's so important to dare and I think that especially as as a female we are not brought up like that in general um, we are brought up a little bit to you know stay in our role and, and be nice and educated and uh and not show off much and, you know, not make a lot of noise. Um, and and I think we have to dare. If you feel that something is right, go for it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if you haven't tried, you will never know. So, so I think that that is, is, is so important. And, and, and yeah, the role of, of mentors in a way, like my dad, I, I, as I said it before, not only because of what he said then, but through my life he has been such a good mentor you know um and then in fifth pro when i started having theo van seichelen our secretary general he was also always trying to um help me in the way of giving me some extra possibilities allowing me to show what i could do uh, and then it's like both ways right so you need someone to give you the opportunity but then you need to take it right i remember I started working in May 2013, and in August we already he already uh, told me uh, travel with me to Cartagena de Indias in in Colombia. There was a general assembly of the division America of FIFPRO, so it's kind of like a confederation thing, sort of, but from the unions. And I was like, "Whoa, already? Okay, awesome." Um, so I went with him, and he told me like, "Would you like to present?" I was like, present what? Like, you know, I, I was only a couple of months in the position. So what could I present? And he said, like, you can present on the on the DRC because I since the moment I started working in, in Fifth Pro, I started um, helping Theo prepare his advices. He was a judge in the DRC uh, for for the FIFA DRC, for the Dispute Resolution Chamber. And I was like, well, okay. Um, and I said, yes. And I think that, it would have been easier for me and he would have definitely understood it if I said like, ah, not yet, maybe the next time or whatever. And I did it and I don't know how I did it. Um, I asked him for help as well, of course. That's also really important to know that you should ask for help. Uh, people do not expect anyone to know everything. If you're new and if you're experienced, even if you're experienced, we don't know any everything. I've been working in FIFPRO for 10 years and there are a million things that I don't know. And I think it's good to assume it and and to ask and, and why not, you know? And I think on the other side, it's so important to be open to share your knowledge to the other people. Uh, that is something that I also really like a lot. In FIFPRO, uh, I was the one that started like the plan of interns so we don't have interns in FIFPRO normally, but in legal we do, only in legal, because I started pushing for that. I think it's so nice. And it takes a lot of time from me because, of course, if you are uh, a mentor to someone, you you have to explain a, a million things, but it gives back so much. So I think it goes both ways. So if I don't know something, uh, it's important uh, and sometimes it's difficult. I'm not saying that it's so easy. Sometimes you say like, oh, maybe I should do, I should know this. But, you know, ask. Um, and if you if someone else is asking for your help, 
be there, be open to 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 provide that help. Um, I think that that is really really important. So while we're at it, let's we haven't even defined or shared what Fifth Pro does. Hopefully, you do know that answer now. You did say when your research, you didn't have, you know, you weren't sure. But just for the listeners listening in, if you just explain a. This is what FIFA Pro is all about. Yeah, exactly. So what we do, we are a union of unions. What does that mean? So at national level, there are players associations or unions. That that is the way, the legal way in which they are organized. But it doesn't matter when I say player union or a player association or union. It's the same for, for this concept. So it's organizations that gather together professional football players of the country to protect their rights, especially their labor rights, right? Um, these unions in the different countries come together in this umbrella that is FIFPRO, right? And where I work is in the headquarters of FIFPRO. So my main task is to help all these unions around the world to do a better job in whatever way possible, right? And sometimes I have to um, help players directly, but most of the times I, I'm helping unions to help their players. Oh, yeah, right. So I hope people are taking notes. So just on that side, from the 10 years, what have you learned from those experiences of the different unions? Because the reason I share this is culture. I think from a theme of my podcast, I've learned if you want, especially the football industry, being mindful of different cultures, how things operate differently. You've already sort of subtly mentioned this, but with FIFA Pro, how do you look at culture as a main factor when working in these different unions around the world? I'm just curious from a culture standpoint. Yeah, that that was also uh, an interesting learning. It's good that you pointed out. I hadn't thought of that, but I do remember also in my first months the. Uh, I was the first uh, I was the first uh, female I was well many things <laughs> I was the first international employee of FIFPRO. So although it was an international organization in the headquarters that were uh, in the Netherlands and still are in the Netherlands all the employees that worked there were Dutch. I'm also actually half Dutch but I was born and raised in Uruguay uh, so I feel less Dutch than Uruguayan to be very honest. Uh, but so I was the first one to be introduced in this organization who did not fully share their culture, although I partly did, who did not speak um, the language. I, I now speak Dutch. I don't in the office. Uh, we speak English there. Um, but my, my entrance in FIFPRO implied that FIFPRO had to change their working language for example. So it was really big. I was the first female lawyer in FIFPRO. And some years later, in 2017, in the end of 2017, uh, I was appointed by uh, uh, by uh, FIFA as the first female judge of the FIFA Dispute Resolution Chamber. What's that about? I'm curious. What is that that chamber? I'm so curious when I saw that on your LinkedIn profile. So if you just explain to listeners, yeah, being a judge. Yeah, the dispute resolution chamber is um, uh, a chamber that decides on the labor disputes between clubs and players, right? So every time there's a club that does not pay a salary to um, a player, the player can go to the FIFA DRC to request this amount. 
only if it's a case of international dimension. And what does that mean? That the nationality of the player and the nationality of the club are different, right? So if we have a, a Spanish uh, player playing in Romania, this player and, and the player is not receiving his salaries and terminates his contract after not receiving his salaries for two months, after sending a default notice, blah, 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 he can go to the FIFA DRC and request the unpaid salaries and a compensation, right? You can also go to the DRC to only request uh, unpaid salaries. But also it could be that the player leaves the club before the contract comes to an end. So the club will lodge a claim in the FIFA DRC against the player. And this is, this is something interesting. I think everyone is aware of it, but I always bring it up because I think it's good that we think about this, about the transfer system, about how we are used to the fact that there's, a, as I said, first a human being, then a worker, then a player that is obliged to stay under employment of a certain club, even if for whatever reason, he doesn't want to be there anymore. And I always say this because we need to bring this to any other industry. If I want to leave FIFPRO, I leave FIFPRO. And I think it's crazy that for any reason, FIFPRO would be able to retain me against my will for whatever amount of years are left in my contract. It is crazy. And I've had some cases that, that were devastating. And in some cases they were resolved and in others it, it, it wasn't. I remember I had a, a case of a female player and, and for her it was a bit more shocking because the men players are sometimes a bit more used to the transfer system and, and they, they understand this kind of retention uh, a little bit more. And sometimes for female players that start playing later on and they are a bit less used to sometimes the, 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 the whole transfer system, it's more difficult to understand. And she was um, a player from Canada, uh, from Canada, sorry. Um, and she was uh, playing in Sweden and everything was okay, but her mom got uh, a disease um, and she was told that, that she, was, she was going to, to pass away um, within months. So it was really bad um, and she was under contract in Sweden and she said, I'm going back home. I mean, it's my mom. I'm not going to just, you know. And, and the club said, yeah, yeah, but you know, you cannot go. And she was like, what do you mean I cannot go? Like, my mom is sick. I'm going home. I don't care, you know. And I remember that when she called, she, she called me kind of like, what is this nonsense? And she was a lawyer. It was funny because she had studied. Like She was like, this is completely like against any principle of law. And I was like, yes, you're right. But... <laughs> Um, and it's so important to 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 uh, think about the system because what happens, because if people don't know that much about how the transfer system works, maybe they don't uh, see the point. The point is that if you terminate your contract without just cause and the just cause is very limited, right? So as, as a player, your just cause would be that you're not being paid 
and then this has to be extended for a long time or that you um I you're being abused in a way but you have to evidence it it has to be like really big but it cannot be a just cause that you just want to leave or that your mom is sick and is about to die that's not a just cause right so you, you can terminate it it is possible but what will happen is that you will have two sanctions one sportive so you will not be able to play uh, football which is your job i mean it's what you do right for six months or so you will not earn a salary as well for those six months your body will deteriorate etc it's so your technique well you know it, it's not just like oh i just don't work for six months you will have to pay a compensation that is not possible to calculate beforehand so you cannot make a conscious decision as a player, even in a situation like this, that you say, like, you know what? If it costs me five thousand, I don't know. I'm just throwing numbers. I'm I'm willing to, you know, to pay this because I want to be with my mom. You can't. You can't calculate beforehand the amount that the DRC and CAS afterwards, as the appeal body, will determine that you will have to pay as compensation to your to your club. And why is this? because the regulations are not clear and because the jurisprudence, so the decisions that have been taken in the past in the DRC and in CAS especially, in the DRC it's a little bit more uh, um, linear, but in CAS especially, have been up and down, considering one thing, not considering in the other one, et cetera, et cetera. So there have been players terminating their contract without just cause, being ordered to pay $15 million to their club. So unless you are Messi, Ronaldo, or or, or one of, of of that bunch, there is a very 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 small percentage of players. Not doable. Exactly. Mm. I'm really grateful for that case study because it puts it in perspective. Bear in mind, it's all now transitioned in today's podcast topic because. When I met you in Greece at the Athens Women's Football Summit with David Alfrey and uh, Dev Kumar Palmi did a session all about players' rights, particularly in women's football. The one thing that I learned from you was like the maternity regulations, which I think is really important because you highlighted, you know, that female football players shouldn't have barriers to be a mother or a player. And I just found that fascinating because it goes right back to your childhood where you had the barrier of not playing football. Again, you're nodding your head and... I just want to go to this main topic on the maternity regulations of why this is so important now and implemented in a way where basically female footballers have better choices and don't have the barriers like that last case study in a way. So could you just touch on the importance of the maternity regulations of FIFPRO and what's the vision behind it moving forward to improve the women's game? Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, this is one of the things that that make me super proud um, of 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 FIFPRO and of myself as well because I know all the effort I have put <laughs> in this in these regulations. Um, if you think of women's football, people tend to say it's something rather new and it's developing. We need to give it time. The truth is, it's not new. The truth is, there is evidence that women's football has existed from late 1800s, beginning 1900s, and has consistently uh, continued through history in some countries, not all the time because it was literally banned, 
like in England, like in Brazil, and in, in, and in other countries. And in other countries, it was not banned by law, but it was socially banned, right? Um, so sometimes I say this because um, on one hand, it is true that the professionalization of women's football is rather new. And I understand that for some things we need patience, but I also say like, hey, for some things we really need to press the gas. We need to really need to accelerate because it's not fair. It's not fair that these ladies have started almost at the same time that the men have started. And yet they have always been, you know, put down. With the maternity, we, we did a, a research in FIFPRO in 2017 about the employ, employment conditions of women's football. And we realized there, I mean, we knew it already, we were seeing it, but it's really good to do these researches because then you really have the numbers and you have the evidence that players were leaving the game too early. So they were leaving the game before reaching their peak. Players reach their peak at around 25, 26, 27 years old, right? That is the moment where they are at their best because they have mastered their, te their technique. They are in really good uh, physical condition uh, so that is normally of course it will vary per person but that's more or less it and players were in women's football living before that time so this had really bad consequences for the players themselves because they were not living because they didn't feel like playing anymore it was for other reasons and it was really bad and it is still really bad for the development of women's football because if the players do not reach their peak we don't see them reaching their peak. We don't see the greatest of the spectacle that they can provide. And then the industry doesn't grow at, this, at the pace that it could grow. Yeah, the product, keep it simple, the product isn't at the highest level. It could be from an ROI, getting businesses involved, bigger tournaments. Sorry, you're nodding your head again, but just uh, keep it short and sweet on the product side from a player standpoint. I love this. Carry on. Exactly. Um, so... The two main reasons why the players were leaving the game too early were, first of all, because they were not earning enough to make ends meet. Um, so that is something that that uh, is really, really relevant, but it's the other point. And the second reason was that players wanted to start a family. So they felt that they had to choose either to continue playing or to start a family. And this was really, really worrying. Because we thought the payment part is really, really important, but maybe it's a bit more difficult to solve. This other part is actually a right that in many countries, all the other women workers have. So why wouldn't they, right? Why wouldn't ha they have the right to, to, to maternity leave, um, et cetera? At the same time, also in 2017, I got contacted by our union in Venezuela. And they told me about uh, a player that had been fired from also a professional player. In Venezuela, women's football is, is quite developed already for years. And she was professional and she had been fired because she was pregnant. And she went to the union and the union helped her and they said, don't worry about it. We don't think, you know, this, this will be um, allowed by, by the courts or at least you will get like a good compensation they called me just for information but they said don't worry about this it's going to be okay because we have national legislation that that 
prevents this from happening. So a claim was lodged in the NDRC, that is the National Dispute Resolution Chamber. So it's the same as I explained from the DRC, but then at federation level. And incredibly enough, the decision was against the player saying that she would not be entitled to any compensation because the club could not have imagined such change of circumstances. And the change of circumstances was that a woman would be pregnant at a very fertile age where normally women are pregnant. So that was devastating. And together with the result of these studies, it really triggered us to start um, uh, researching what possibilities there were, how to do it, because when we started looking around it in, in the different uh, sports, we realized that actually there's no other sports that regulates maternity at an international level. No other sport. So we couldn't uh, get inspiration or, or even copy some things from, from other places. We did see in individual uh, sports in a specific country, good protections, not that many, but we did find, I remember in rugby um, and netball in New Zealand, in Australia, uh, we had some in the NCAA from the US in athletics. Uh, we had some good inspiration, but we wanted to create a regulation that was impossible to, um, to reject. We needed to go to FIFA with something that they could not say, oh, well, later, you know, as FIFA, we negotiate with FIFA all the times regarding regulations for improvements of conditions of players. And, and sometimes things go through and many times they don't. Um, and many times the discussions take forever. And I'm really talking about years and years and years on a topic. And this had to be now, right? It had to be, so we needed something strong. So what we did was uh, that we looked at the ILO, the International Labor Organization, and the Convention 183 from the year 2000, which regulates maternity in a working space. So we said, if the ILO is saying that the player, that the workers should be entitled to maternity leave for this length, blah, 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 how can FIFA say, because they have already admitted uh, and stated that players are workers, how can they say, oh, yes, but players not? So we based our draft of, re of regulations in the ILO, taking also some things from the other uh, good regulations that we had seen. And we went to FIFA with a very solid piece on articles that should be accepted as we drafted them. And then we also added some um, recommendations on things that we thought that it was very difficult to push through from the very beginning. but that it was good to already have in mind to improve the, the situation of players. And this was, a, the first talk with FIFA was in January uh, 2020. We sent the documentation in February and in March we had COVID. So it was like, no, like this will never be a priority, you know. Uh, however, we kept on pushing and pushing and pushing. And I have to say that I think that this was the best collaboration that we have ever had with FIFA 
Um, speaking with Emilio Garcia, he's the head of legal in FIFA. He really understood the, the importance of this. He saw it as well, right? Um, and in August, we already had our first meeting together with uh, stakeholders. So it was not only with FIFA, but also with ECA, the European Club Association, the World League Forum, uh, UEFA, um, and some member associations that FIFA had um, selected. And we started talking about this, saying, okay, how are we going to do it? Blah, blah, blah. And we had um, some meetings that were really productive. Of course, there were discussions. Of course, there were things that we wanted to be there that were in the end not included. Uh, so I'm not saying it was perfect, but having the experience of 10 years, I'm telling you, this was really one of the best uh, um, collaborations that we had together with FIFA and the other stakeholders as well. And already in the end of the year, it was approved and they were mandatory as of 1st January 2021. So it was super fast. And what, what did this imply? This implied that for the 211 member associations that FIFA has, this is 211 countries, that the professional players will have maternity protections in all of these countries. And this includes countries where normal female workers do not have these rights, right? We have to think of that because, you know, when the regulations came out, some countries said like, ah, well, we have better provisions or, you know, uh, more protective provisions. Yes, awesome. But this is general. This is a minimum to start with. So if you have better provisions, great. Congrats and carry on. But this is a minimum to be applied to every country. So in, in to me, and I'm a little bit of an idealist, but I still see it this way. I think it can really be a catalyst to improve, to, to, to create social change in, in some of these countries. Because if you are a maid, if you're a waitress, and you see that the football player has a right of, to maternity leave, but you don't, maybe you start fighting for it, right? So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's amazing the potential that it has. In practice, it has not been that powerful yet because uh, it has not been implemented at national level as FIFA has mandated. So it's still mandatory, but until it's really implemented, I don't think it will create the social change that we that we expect. Just on that point of social change, I was going to say that with regards to when you bring in this regulation, this was bigger than what's on the pitch. This is bigger than federations how they run this is this is like you said the social change i see you nodding your head again because the reason i said the body language is so awesome today in this podcast but sometimes alexandra how important is it to grow not just women's football but to grow the football industry we have to look at it in that viewpoint of the social change beyond football and like you say with other industries i just want you to reflect on that point because i think that's really important to highlight um like i love the point that you said that collaboration with fifa you said it wasn't perfect but it was done in a year. Two points. One, what's the benefits of a good collaboration? But two, looking at these regulations that are bigger beyond the pitch. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that we need to 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 understand that the world is one, um, that the society in general terms is one, and that we're all part of the same. So 
everything that triggers social change uh, um, for the better <laughs> uh, will always benefit everyone. So that's why we always need to think a little bit broadly, right? Um, that's why also I think it's it's so great when when football is used, you know, with a with a good cause, with a social cause in the right way as well. Uh, this the maternity relations is maybe an example, but also when it's done like to bring communities together. Um, I mean, we're part of we're all part of the same. If we all improve, we improve together. If only one part improves, probably will not improve as much because this will drag it down, right? hundred percent. Now, out of interest, though, what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey looking back right now? I think there are so many things. Working with it with a team uh, in FIFPRO has been amazing to 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 work with people that share your same passion, uh, that understand the reason why, the the core of what you're doing and why you're doing it, regardless of everything else that has been an absolute pleasure and that's why I, I like working there so much um also from my job the 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 constant change I mean I wake up in the morning and I never know what's going to happen in that day and sometimes I'm helping a player sometimes I'm helping a union sometimes I'm deciding cases in the FIFA DRC Sometimes I'm drafting, helping draft a, a CBA, a collective bargaining agreement, or a standard contract, or I'm looking at the statutes of a, a member to try to help them improve it. There are so, so many things uh, that, that makes it really um, interesting. Um, and then, yeah, personally, I think there were probably two things that, that I absolutely uh, enjoyed. One was when we were able to help uh, Sayer Belloni. I don't know if you know that case. Uh, it was a French player that was trapped in Qatar. Uh, I say trapped because he had a contract there and the club kept his passport and they stopped paying his salaries and uh, they evicted him from his um, accommodation. It was a, really a horror story. He was there with his kids and with his wife. Um, and they said, if you sign this waiver saying that we don't owe you anything, although they owed him a lot of uh, salaries, uh, we will give you back your passport and then you can leave. And he still had a contract. And it was um, a, a, an awful case within the context of the Kafala system, which actually allowed the employer um, to, to retain the passport, give an authorization to the employee to leave the country or not. So it was the power of uh, the employer. And um, and that was one of my, I actually was the first case that I did directly for a player. And he came to the office, I remember, uh, together with his wife. And I was devastated by his story. And I said, okay, we need to do something. And uh, it's a very complex case, but in the end he got paid and that was so fulfilling because of everything he had gone through. Uh, that was really nice for him. And then for the industry, for the world, the kafala system was abolished in a big percentage because of this case, because of uh, the Sair Belloni case. So imagine that this case really helped change uh, the lives of so many employees because it's the whole kafala system so, so not the kafala system again 
not only for football, but for everyone, right? So that was, uh, yeah, really amazing. Um, and then probably um, from, from the last part, the maternity regulations, achieving them, uh, knowing the impact that they have, um, and then helping specifically Sarah Bjork. Uh, that was the first case that was lodged in the FIFA DRC um, uh, on maternity that we also won and, and, and what it meant, right? It meant standing before the biggest football club in women's football and saying, you have to pay me my salaries, right? Um, so, yeah, I think that probably those two as, 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 as cases of specific things were, were amazing. And, of course, when I was um, appointed as, as a FIFA DRC judge, that was also a big moment because... I, yeah, it was kind of a moment of, of recognition of what I had become, what I had achieved, uh, being the first woman there. Um, the DRC exists since 2002. And until 2017, there had never been any women. So uh, it was big. <laughs> and hopefully that will change as well with more you know in the future by the way and look i've really enjoyed this conversation alexandra and always finish with an inspirational question what three tips would you give to listeners so they can apply straight away with regards to pursuing a career in the football industry like what three tips would you give and feel free to recap of some of the great tips you've given already uh well i think that's really really important do things that probably are not the most comfortable for you or that you maybe think that you're not the most suitable person Again, this is something that happens to women a lot that, that we are like, if I'm not, if I don't comply with all the requirements that they're asking for, and then it's not for me. Well, you know, go for it. And the worst thing that can happen is that they say no. And then if you are picked, and this is also really important, then do your utmost to be the best that you can be um, and do it with full commitment, thinking that you are impacting persons that you can impact society um if you're a lawyer of a football player you're de dealing with a human being and you have to treat that with so much responsibility and you need to allow yourself to make mistakes because you will in a certain moment you will but if you do you also have to know that you will do everything you can to fix it and to make it better and and to keep on working so that the rest goes the best possible way so always remember that it's not like the industry the money the it's people is you know i think that that is so important and and so needed and then uh, maybe basic but i think it's so important don't repeat like a parrot go to the sources read the regulations yourself don't read what whatever super rock star lawyer says about the article maybe afterwards read it but first go to the to the, the when i say articles sorry go to the regulations read the regulations understand interpret them yourself have your own conclusions and then of course it's not bad to read what others think about it but don't underestimate your, yourself thinking like oh better to already read what this rock star lawyer says right because many of these rock star lawyers, I'm telling you, um, are not always right. And, and it's so important to also to develop the industry, to develop um, the regulations, to develop 
the, 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 the legal status of the industry, that new people come with new ideas, with new interpretations, and that they, you know, that the industry keeps on evolving. So, of course, use all the resources that you can. Go to these uh, super rockstar lawyers if you want to, but first assess for yourself and, you know, give it your own thing. 100%. And I hope people enjoying listening to this rockstar on this podcast, by the way. And look at Alexandra, how can people interact with you on social media, particularly Instagram? Can I just say her positive mindset with her quotes, inspirational quotes, are absolutely awesome on our stories. You should follow her there. But Alexandra, just for the listeners, can you just share where people can follow follow you online, where the best places to go? Yeah, sure. So yeah, Instagram, that is Ale Gomez in football uh, or LinkedIn, Alexandra Gomez Brownabout. So in both places, I try to post uh, as much information as possible. Amazing. To all the listeners listening in, all those links will be on my website with regards to this amazing podcast chat. Alexandra, it's been a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a fascinating podcast chat with Alexandra. And if you're a sports lawyer, I hope you were taking notes with regards to what it takes to be an international sports lawyer, but also how culture can make you a better lawyer with regards to being mindful and really understanding languages when working with people around the world, if it's athletes, if it's clients, with regards to the role of what it takes to be a lawyer, particularly when evaluating contracts for players. But I have to say one of my biggest enjoyable moments of this podcast from a learning experience which we can all apply not if you're just want to pursue a career in sports law is the power of teaching and how teaching can open up doors and opportunities in a role you thought was not possible like this is the key Alexandra started teaching English and it was from working with players that player Nico who was a professional football player and teaching him English and his wife opened up doors while studying law to then transition into sports law. But it's really the teaching part that we can all do. And I think this is such a really important component with regards to our personal development that by teaching others, you develop your communication skills and it can open up opportunities from an employment standpoint. So for me, I really enjoyed that first part of the podcast relating to Alexandra's journey. Now with regards to women's football, right at the end I hope you enjoyed the conversation about how female football players don't need to make a choice now with regards to their decisions of being a professional player and being a mother I think this is such an important component of the podcast I want to highlight at the ending that player support and well-being is vital on and off the pitch and players shouldn't be reduced due to their career due to life decisions off the pitch and I think that was such a really important component of our podcast which I wanted to highlight now but from a sports career development standpoint I hope you apply one learning lesson from Alexandra and apply it to your sports career development now and make it happen now as always at the end of each podcast episode I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker Alexandra said do things that are uncomfortable but test you and go for it that is how you make opportunities a reality 